We are in the book of Acts. We are, believe it or not, covering three chapters today. Needless to say, not verse by verse. So we're doing chapters 21 through 23. Um, it's, well, as I began reading through these chapters and uh, studying, it occurred to me that this part of the book is in some ways the, the, not the beginning, but a continuation of a long narrative that tra traces the latter stages of the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. We could say his life through many dangers, toils, and snares, in the words of the hymn writer. However, I also thought of how easy it is to miss the sweep of this account by doing what we so often do, breaking it up into little pieces, doing a few verses at a time. And there's place for verse-by-verse -verse exposition. Most of the churches I've been in have done verse-by-verse -verse exposition, but you can't do that with three chapters. I suspect that I would be here by myself after not too long if we were going through this verse by verse. So we won't try that. Sometimes we need to do verse by verse. Sometimes we do well to take a bigger mouthful, if you will. And this episode in Paul's life is one of those. Not that I had a choice. I was assigned these three chapters, but I'll take that up with Pastor Jonathan when he gets back. <clears throat> I was also struck with how these chapters can easily fit into a grander pattern than we ordinarily assign to it. Thinking, he, thinking here of hero or epic tales. Perhaps many of you can remember studying the Odyssey in high school. Anybody? Wow. Let's have a pop quiz. No, just kidding. Homer may not have been one of your favorite writers, but the genre of epic quests, travel literature, is one that endures. Think Lord of the Rings. Think even of Huckleberry Finn, if you read that. It was a saga that took a main character from one point to another over a period of time with a lot of stories. Every episode was kind of its own story. Sometimes... Um, so anyway, the, in the Odyssey, Odysseus and his companions, who have just completed the conquest of Troy in the Ten-Year Trojan War, are on their way home to Ithaca, having defeated the army of Troy. Now the journey takes them yet another ten years. And along the way, all of the sailors, Odysseus's traveling companions, die mostly violent deaths. The reason for this lengthy trip is that Odysseus has angered one or more of the Greek gods, if you remember your mythology. And it's a classic tale of the conflict between men and the gods, Greek version, and features such memorable characters as the Cyclops, you remember him, uh, the Sirens, and others that were that played a, a major role in this tale by Homer. Not only due to the assistance of other gods who help Odysseus in his, and his own ingenuity and bravery, is the hero able to get back home. And once he does that, he has to overcome other challenges in order to reclaim his home and his wife. But that's a long story, so we won't go into that. 
I thought of this story while preparing for this week's sermon from Acts 21 to 23. Paul's travels from Ephesus to Jerusalem are in some ways reminiscent of the Odyssey. He has to overcome great obstacles, harrowing adventures, threats to his life, and the companionship and help of loyal friends. All these are part of Paul's story as recorded by Luke. I think it's helpful to remember that this book wasn't broken up into chapters originally. It was just one long narrative. Keeping this in mind might help us to preserve the flow as opposed to considering each chapter or even paragraph independently. And the journey, which takes up a major part of the second half of Acts, is guided guided not by the gods, but by the God, capital G, to whom Paul has committed his life. Here we have not a heroic character in the human sense, not an Odysseus or even a Frodo, but a humble man who is driven by his dedication to the mission to which he has been called by Christ. Here we also have the fulfillment of the Lord's words in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, and this is Jesus speaking of Paul, uh, giving Ananias a message to deliver to Paul, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And suffer he did. As shown in the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, 11, verse 24 and following, where Paul lists a catalog of all the things that he went through, all the suffering. Um, it's, it's, I mean, he's, I'll just read a couple of verses for you. He said, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was bitten, beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. And he goes on from there and tells, not in great detail, but uh, kind of an overview. This is what I have gone through. But to Paul, he didn't resent that. It was, it was kind of part of, what, part of what he was assigned to do. Now, remember that traveling in Paul's day wasn't, you know, you didn't call up carnival cruisers that want to catch a ship to Jerusalem. You had to find a spot on any boat that was available and you kind of took your chances. It uh, was very different from the way things are today. But all was not suffering for Paul. Notice that while he was in Ephesus, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, Luke tells tells us something extraordinary. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All the residents of Asia heard the Lord. Now, does it mean every single one? That's probably a little hyperbole, but he was so effective in, in his communication of the gospel that it spread throughout all of Asia, both Jews and Greeks. The following verse tells us that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So neither persecution nor success were able to sidetrack Paul from proclaiming the gospel. Without a doubt, Paul regularly found himself in the midst of, middle of controversy. Whether between him and Barnabas, as we saw a couple of weeks ago when they parted ways, when Jonathan preached on that, or more often, disputes with, Jews, with the Jews of his day who vigorously opposed his proclamation of Jesus as the Christ. Opposition was persistent and often violent, putting, putting Paul's life at risk. 
He had more than his share of those who wanted him dead, literally. And we will see that in this passage before us today. These chapters and acts are the continuation of one long narrative which began essentially in chapter 20, verse 16, where we read, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. These words may not sound all that foreboding, but the purposing here to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost will commit Paul to a course that in the well of the Lord will lead him to Jerusalem and then ultimately to Rome. If I may, I just want to summarize these three chapters and then draw draw some applications. Having delivered his charge to the Ephesian elders at the end of chapter 20, Paul and those traveling with him board, board the ship to travel to Jerusalem. Now, I know that most of you carry your Bibles in your phones, so you can't look in the back to see the maps for the third missionary journey of Paul, but we happen to have, through the wonders of modern technology, what do you think? This is Paul's third missionary journey. If you can see, just about in the middle of the map, it says Miletus, M-I-L-E-T-U-S, That's where Paul met with the Ephesian elders and where he gave his farewell charge to them. So from there, then past, if if, if we were to read all of the verses, it would say he went past Kos, Rhodes, Patara, Tyre, Ptolemais, and Caesarea, finally arriving in Jerusalem. That was quite a journey. It was quite a trip. He and his traveling companions stopped at these various ports. Um, In in some places, they were shown hospitality by believers who were there. They stayed seven days, for example, in Tyre, uh, ultimately reaching Jerusalem. Now, Paul is shown hospitality by believers along the way, including by Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the original seven deacons, and also it tells us the father of four young daughters with the gift of prophecy. Interesting, which to me, it doesn't say that they prophesied anything for Paul, just this, this seemingly random fact dropped in there, I think lends to the authenticity of this account, that it's not something that Luke was making up in any event. <clears throat> um, more than once, Paul is cautioned against going to Jerusalem most notably by Agabus in 2111. This prompts his friends to try to convince him to stay away. Agabus was the guy, if you remember, earlier in Acts, who predicted a famine for uh, Judea. And it, it happened. It happened. And that was one of the, one of the uh, tasks that Paul had in these missionary journeys was taking up a collect- collection for the needy saints in Jerusalem. He may, have, may even have been taking that money with him as he's on his way to Jerusalem now. We don't know because Luke doesn't point that out. In any event, <clears throat> Paul would not be persuaded leading his friends to say, let the will of the Lord be done. He's, they said, essentially they said to Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's, it's dangerous, too dangerous for you there. And he said, no, th- this is what the Lord has called me to do. So, uh, in fact, if you 
look at that in chapter 21, verse uh, 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Once he arrives in Jerusalem, Paul meets with James and other leaders of the church who hear his report of what the Lord has accomplished through his ministry. They alert him to the fact that rumors are being spread about his teaching from the passage that Seske read earlier uh, and counsel him to join with four other men in participating in a vow. This, they say, will reassure the Jews that Paul lives in observance of the law and perhaps avert a crisis. Paul complies with their counsel and pays the expenses of the elder men. However, at the end of the vow period, the Jews from Asia, looking for a pretext to accuse Paul of behaving contrary to the law, incite a riot by falsely accusing him of violating the sanctity of the temple by allowing Trophimus, an Ephesian Gentile, and traveling companion of Paul's to go into the inner court, which was off limits to the Gentiles. Indeed, any Gentile who went there was committing a crime punishable by death, according to one New Testament scholar that I consulted. So this is a big deal in terms of what it means for Paul. He's being accused of doing something that could lead to the death of a Gentile who had violated the sanctity of the temple. And it didn't matter that he didn't do that. The accusers simply put it out there and you know, rallied the troops, so to speak. Again, that was the passage that Seski read earlier. The ensuing riot, described in the latter part of chapter 21, gets so violent that the Roman tribune, a legionary officer, is compelled to rescue Paul by force in order to keep him from being killed by the mob. Didn't look good for the Romans and for the, for the official there on site in Jerusalem if these kinds of things happened. They wanted to keep the peace. They wanted to at least preserve, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> preserve the appearance that things were all well in Jerusalem. I apologize. <clears throat> I had my first cold in two years. And it just happened to be today. <clears throat> Once safely in Roman hands, Paul asks permission to address the crowd. The tribune, having established that Paul is not a notorious Egyptian revolutionary, that too is in the text if you want to uh, read it. Maybe you've read it in advance. That would be great. But he allows it. Paul gets the attention of the crowd. He proceeds to recite his story which isn't the first time he's done so here in Acts, nor will it be the last, intending to show his pedigree is a good Jew. And all is going okay. He's got the attention of the crowd. They're listening until he makes the fateful statement, quoting the Lord, go for all I will send you to the Gentiles. And this is in chapter uh, twenty. 2, verse 21, and he said to me, go, 
where I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Sounds like a harmless enough statement, but the very mention of the word Gentiles is enough to stir up the crowd. Sends the Jews into a frenzy, and the tribune has to step in to restore order and protect Paul's life. In the process, he decides Paul should be exempt, quote, should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Aren't you glad that our system allows you to have a trial before your accusers and you can't be punished before you're found guilty? I mean, this was a much different system in Rome, in the Roman Empire, in the first century. Uh, someone with the requisite authority could say, well, we want to get to the truth, so we're going to flog you until you tell us the truth. Hmm. Police practices? How does that sound, Pete? Yeah. <clears throat> so, Paul is only able to avoid the flogging by claiming his right as a citizen of the empire. And the uh, tribune is taken aback. And he's a little nervous that he has ordered this to happen, even though it hasn't, hadn't yet happened, uh, and doing this to a Roman citizen. If you were a Roman citizen that day, uh, you, got, you got special treatment. Not everybody could be a citizen. Well, the following day, and this takes us into chapter 23, the tribune summons the Jewish council, and Paul is given a chance to make his defense again. On this occasion, Paul employs an interesting technique when he makes a statement intending to divide the council, Sadducees against Pharisees. You can read that in verses 6 through 10 of uh, chapter 23. He, he realizes, I mean, he's, he's familiar with these procedures. He's a Pharisee, he was a Pharisee himself, and he knows the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees, and he knows how to, how to drive a little wedge in between them, which on this occasion... He thought maybe that would be a good idea. This succeeds in exposing the division, but once again a violent struggle breaks out and Paul has to be rescued by the soldiers. That night he has a visit from the Lord who tells him, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. How comforting must that have been for Paul? In the midst of these crazy, riotous things going on, and the Lord comes to him in the night and says, take courage. You're going to make it to Rome, and you're going to testify about me in Rome. Well, The remainder of chapter 23 tells us how no fewer... And it, 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 this sounds crazy, but it's not. It happened. No fewer than 40 Jews plot together to kill Paul, vowing to neither eat nor drink until they have done so. Paul's nephew, the son of his sister, who we really don't know anything else about, somehow hears about this and manages to inform Paul, who fills in the centurion on duty, and the centurion communicates the information to the tribune. Now the stakes are raised. The Jews are determined to take matters into their own hands. Hearing this, the tribune finds Paul's nephew credible, and makes a quick decision to get Paul away during the night, sending him to Caesarea, which is just back in the direction... Oh, we don't still have the map. You have it in your mind. Back in the direction where he'd come... Oh, 
There it is. So <clears throat> Caesarea, Jerusalem, back to Caesarea. Caesarea was like a provincial capital or important place. <clears throat> so we can't let this guy get killed by these radicals. We need to do something to protect him. Um, and he does so with a full military escort. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. The provincial governor Felix, upon reading the letter sent with Paul by the tribune, promises to hear the case as soon as Paul's accusers arrive. Thus ends chapter 23, our passage for the day. A few observations for you. Seen as a whole, we can see the Lord's hand in this saga, which will continue with Paul's appeal to Caesar and trip to Rome. There are the more obvious points, such as the Lord's appearance to Paul, which I just mentioned in 2311, assuring him that he will make it to Rome, there to testify to the facts about Jesus. There are also smaller details, such as Paul's nephew finding out about the plot. How did that happen? Were the conspirators unaware of who he was? And then there's the tribune's decisive and immediate response. Danger to a prisoner? Well, then take a few hundred soldiers and 70 horsemen and get him away from here. This isn't all coincidental. It's all been ordained by God. God's hand is apparent, is obvious throughout this whole narrative. Another observation, Paul's submission to the Lord's will. <clears throat> Having determined that it was the Lord's will for him to go to Jerusalem, Paul will not be sidetracked by the warnings of others who know and love him, even those who say they have prophetic insight. As to the question of how Paul discerned what exactly was the Lord's will, was what he believed, or was it Agabus and the others who were telling him, don't go to Jerusalem? We don't know for sure, but he stuck to his guns, so to speak, and followed through on what he was convinced of. I'd suggest this is more than dedication to duty on Paul's part. Rather, I think his heart had been taken captive by Christ. Paul is an early example of what we sometimes, not very often anymore, but sing in the old hymn, Be Thou My Vision. The words go, the first verse called, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, not, easy for you to say, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou, my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, my presence, my light. This helps us to understand the apostle, I believe, in a way similar to what we saw back, which would have been last week, but chapter 20, this, this just jumped out at me. Chapter 20, verse, uh, he's talking to, again, the Ephesian elders here. This is back in Miletus. Uh, but I do, <clears throat> and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
Easy words to say. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. In Paul's case, I think we can believe that it was genuine, that what was most important to him was carrying out the mission he had been given by the Lord. How different would the history of the church have been if this had not been, not been true? I think we can agree that Paul was, humanly speaking, the most influential figure in the early church. God used him mightily to build the fledgling church into a global presence. Then think about the implications for us today. As I thought about this, I was, I was uh, appreciating the connection the question can be asked whether any of us would be believers if not for the faithfulness of Paul. I mean, humanly speaking, if it was the Lord's will, it's going to happen with or without Paul. But um, it's popular in our culture to, to trace one's ancestry. I have a cousin who claims to have, dis, who, to have discovered that our family can be traced back to Governor William Bradford through my father's mother. Are you impressed? Um, whether that's true or not, I can't say with certainty, but spiritually, I and all of us can say that our ancestry includes Paul and Peter and James and John and, of course, Jesus, the hand of the Lord orchestrating this and ordaining every detail of our lives to bring us into his family is unmistakable. And the Apostle Paul was a major part of that. Again, as I was going through this, <clears throat> thinking about the experiences Paul had, um, the question occurred to me, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail maybe, but how did Paul pay for all this? Passage on ship, ships, expenses for the four Jewish men to fulfill their vow, and whatever else he needed to live and follow through with his commitments. Well, we know that he worked with his hands, making tents, there's other place, another place in Acts where it tells us he worked with Aquila and Priscilla. But we also know that the churches he planted sent support to him. In Philippians 4, for one place, let me just turn there, because a friend of mine who uh, passed away a couple of years ago, but who was a missionary, um, brought this to my attention and I've remembered it ever since. In Philippians 4, Paul is thanking the Philippian church for their financial assistance. He said, yet it was in verse 14, it was kind of you to share my trouble and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And then verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. The fruit that increases to your credit. Think of it. When... We financially support the ministries of this church. We're making an investment which will never be lost. The missionaries we support, Dave Terranova in Spain, Freddie Smola in the Czech Republic, the Harbors in Taiwan, and others. 
The harvest, harvest these servants of the Lord have through their labors that are partially supported by Redeemer, all this is being kept track of by God who never misses a thing, and it's credited to your account and mine. Is that not an amazing thing? There is always more going on in the kingdom than meets the eye, and I'm so grateful for my friend who brought that to my attention. One final question. Was Paul in a completely different category from the rest of us ordinary Christians? In your bulletin is a statement I ran across. Is it there? I looked for it earlier. Ah. In the, the, the back page of the Bolton community group questions, here's a statement that I ran across. All of us, if we are obedient to Christ, will face death of some sort, for the cross is a non-negotiable prerequisite of discipleship. All of us, if we are obedient to Christ, will face death of some sort, for the cross is a non-negotiable prerequisite of discipleship. That's a sobering statement. When I read things like this, my knee-jerk response is to downplay or minimize, file away in the back of my mind, not in 21st century America, I say, but not out loud so as not to appear unspiritual. In other words, if I struggle with a statement like that, I'm probably not going to let you know but I'm going to wrestle with it just the same. And maybe you will too. And I know that believers all over the world are facing literal death on a daily basis, and I also know their testimony is that Jesus is worth it, that he gives grace when it is needed. Still, I believe I need to be challenged on a regular basis to examine my own heart to see where my real treasure is. And whether I can say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Father, we've talked much about Paul. But we don't want to miss the point that, uh, in the words of a popular ministry, the Bible is one story that leads to Jesus. And because of Jesus and Jesus' work in Paul's life, he was able to do what he did. And he was able to pave the way for those that came after him, ultimately for us. Lord, Would that we would all be able to say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you there's nothing I desire on earth. We know that was true of Paul, who willingly went into difficult and dangerous places, knowing what lay ahead of him, because he wanted, as he said in another place, he said, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord has granted to those who love his appearing. That was true of Paul, may it be true of us.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.